It's been a rich week as I was preparing this week for a sermon on service. How can you talk about the church without talking about the opportunity to serve? There were many individuals in this church that just kind of spontaneously came to mind. You probably have a Sunday school teacher that has been doing what they're doing for many years. When's the last time that you told them thank you? We've got folks that work in our nursery that have pampered more bottoms than we could probably count. And it seems like sometimes in church there's just a lot of thankless tasks. So one of the things I just want to encourage you this morning is we talk about service. And as people are called to your mind who have served you, tell them thank you. Guarantee you, um, you're not as thankful as you think you are. And everybody could, li- could use a little encouragement when you think about this. But I will tell you one thing that has been <clears throat> interesting to me. And it's this. Have you ever considered how as a country, as Americans, our attitude towards service has changed? It's changed. Those of you who know me well know that I have a few books. I enjoy to read. I like to read all kinds of different things. And one of my favorite books is by a man named Ray Jackson, who wrote a book called America's Youngest Warriors. If, you, if you're a history buff, if you're a World War II buff, you want to write that title down. It's a fascinating book. And in this book, Ray Jackson essentially chronicles and documents the history of underage patriots who lied about their age to enlist for World War II. Now, we hear the stories. So-and-so lied. He was 17 and said that he was 18. How many people do you think lied about their age to fight in World War II? You hear a story over here and you hear a story over there. Maybe you see a newspaper article. They think it was close to a quarter of a million people. Over 200 thousand men and women lied about their age to enlist in World War II. The uh, earliest documented person that they can figure out that lied was a 12-year-old boy who lied about his age to serve. Now, I've seen some mature 12-year-olds. I don't know that they're going to fool me to tell me that they're 18. You have to ask, what would encourage this kind of sacrifice? And certainly, for men, war is a terrible thing, but there is, to some degree, that sense of adventure, going to a foreign land. There is that ideal of defending against an evil tyrant. Uh, the, The Nazis, who were putting entire races to death, trying to exterminate people, and we had the opportunity to stand against that. But the most considerable force driving this kind of sacrifice was an attitude of patriotism that drove young people to lie for what they considered to be the privilege of serving their country. We'll never see that again in our lifetime. People aren't willing to sacrifice for anything anymore. And if you question that. Certainly there are individuals who are willing to sacrifice. 
Fast forward 30 years from World War II, mid-1940s, to the mid-1970s. In contrast, the attitude towards military service in World War II with the attitude towards military service in the Vietnam War. Within just three decades, our nation's mentality about serving their country in conscripted service had changed a complete 180 degrees. Instead of lying for the opportunity to serve, they would lie for the opportunity to get out of service. They would burn their draft cards. They would protest violently. And they would practice ROTC. You know what that stands for. Run over to Canada. Anything that they could do to get out of service. And our country had radically and tragically changed in its attitude towards service. And nowadays, service sounds like such a dirty word that it's relegated to the realm of immigrants and illegal aliens. Thousands of college graduates sit home unemployed because service, that's beneath them. And the truth is, this kind of mentality has even infected the church. When it's recruiting time and you're on the nominating committee, friends will not talk to you in the hallway because they know that you're looking for Sunday school teachers or you're looking for nursery workers or you're looking for someone to cut the grass or, or do something. And, you know, we're going, oh, great, there's somebody on the nominating committee again. Hey, brother, and you walk down a different aisle way. Anything that you can do to avoid them just for a couple Weeks until you know that they've got their presentation ready. I love the, you, you find this in church, we're pious people. But we say we'd, we've got an opportunity to serve. And what's the default setting for a Christian when it comes to service? It should be, sure, fill me in on the details. What do we say instead? Let me pray about that. As if the person asking you hadn't already prayed about it for you. And obviously saw some gifts, talents, and ability that you could leverage for a need in the church. And so it's occasionally difficult to recruit people for ministry in the church. Does that shock you? Does that surprise you? Instead of ministry being a get-to, we've turned it into a got-to. Instead of ministry being a delight, turned it into a duty. Instead of ministry being a privilege, we view it as punitive. Have you ever heard someone say, hey, listen, we need someone to teach a Sunday school class? Well, I've already done my time. It's a prison sentence. <laughs> Listen, I've done my time. I paroled out. He <laughs> ain't getting me back in there. And so to be a church that glorifies God, friends, we just have to examine our attitude towards service. And we've got to make sure, sure that the way that we serve is right. And so in order to help us with this understanding there were several people that came to mind, but I've asked uh, Mrs. Alice Reeves to come and share a little bit 
about why she serves in our church. I'm not used to being on this side of the pulpit. I'm usually back there or in the nursery. But I'll give you a little bit of history about how I got to the nursery. Um, Many of you know that um, I did not grow up in Rock Hill. I grew up in Oklahoma. And I met my husband when he was in the military there. So I, but I didn't get to go through the military with him. He decided he wanted out before he um, spent any more time there. I will say that his father is one of those who did volunteer at an early age. He was 17 when he went to World War II. But, um, and I think his father was very proud of that because he did. But I did. I, like I said, I grew up in Oklahoma. My dad was a minister, so I sort of knew what church was all about. I uh, didn't really know um, a lot about serving until... I guess I was in college, and um, I was a member of a church that my uncle pastored. And at that time, they didn't use a lot of college kids to, um, to do service. But um, I was able to work with children uh, at that time. Never really thought children was my calling, but evidently it was because I've been in children's work just about all of my adult life. But having been brought up in church, I knew uh, that I had a responsibility to serve. My, um, just uh, not just where I lived at that time, but wherever I went. Wayne had grown up at Park Baptist, and at the time I came to Rock Hill with him, we uh, went to Sylvia Circle. And so I naturally started serving there in various places. Not long after Wayne and I came to Rock Hill or came to Northside, I started, um, at the time they called it superintendent of the youth department. That tells you how far, how far back it is. <laughs> but um, I did work in the youth department. I loved the youth, but I quickly found out that they knew a whole lot more than I did. So I kind of got out of the youth department when we got a new minister of education. I just gladly turned the reins over to him. A few weeks or a few months after that, then I was asked to serve in the children's department. And I was in there, I don't even know how many years I was in children's department. I cannot really think back because of when I started. But I will say this, I loved every minute of it. We had some really good times in there. A lot of the kids that were in the, the children's department when I was there, um, most of them are now married. Some of them have their own children. Some of them are even here now serving. And there are a few of them that are the older youth right now, Reed, and uh, are in the same youth department uh, that my granddaughter is in. So that kind of tells you about how long I've been around. Um, but after a short, well, about while I was working in the children's department, our lives changed. Uh, Wayne's parents needed day-to-day care. So I took a break and took care of them. I missed being here. There's no doubt about it. But that's where I needed to be, was with them. When I came back, um, I say I came back, I was out of service maybe two years, three years, I don't really know. But the children were well taken care of, the youth were well taken care of, the nursery was well taken care of. So I went to WMU, 
Well, I love missions, but that just wasn't where I was comfortable. I, I knew that I needed to be somewhere else. I went to Sunday school for a while, and then one day, I think it was David Mills came to me, and he said, um, will you take WMU directorship again? I looked at him, it was kind of funny, and I said, you know, David, I really would like to go to the nursery. At that time, Stephen Priscilla Earhart had moved uh, onto another onto another church, another field, and I knew that our nursery needed help. But, you know, up until then, I had never, ever thought about working in the nursery. I'd never been really comfortable around babies. I liked older kids. I liked kids that I could run with and play with and romp with and just have a really good time. But for some reason, God kept saying, nursery is where you need to be. So... I went to the nursery, and that has been seven, what, seven and a half years ago. So I've been there quite a while, but I love it in there. I've learned to be comfortable around babies, and I've learned that even little preschoolers can play and have a good time, and sometimes I've learned that they, too, know sometimes more than I do. <laughs> it's amazing what they know as preschoolers. I am just uh, amazed at what children learn and how they learn so quickly today. I am I'm not one of those got-to people. I'm, I'm a get-to pe- person. I really do enjoy being in our nursery. And I want to just tell you a little bit about what we do. Um, we start out, of course, with babies. When they are born, they come to us eventually. We had our first baby to come today in about eight or ten months because we just we had a dry spell there, and we kept saying we got to have some babies. We got to have some babies in this nursery. We, and, but we had them. Uh, John and Sarah Kate brought their baby to us today, and we were tickled to death. We felt like that it was just you know a whole new school there. And um, so we had we start them out in the babies, and we keep them in the infant room until they start walking. Once they start walking, then they're running all over those little crawlers and, you know, this and that and the other. So then we move them to a one-year-old room. And there they're turned loose. They can do what they want to some, in some way. We, uh, you know, we have, to, uh, we have to calm them down quite often. We teach them how to share their toys we teach them about the love of Jesus for them and for others. Uh, we read book after book after book, and we learn to play toys. We change batteries in those toys. You'd be surprised how many batteries we go through in the nursery. But we, they just have a good time in the one-year-old one room, but they do learn. And um, they go through a lot of juice, a lot of crackers. Well, then... Once they get past that one-year stage, they move up to the two-year-olds. They turn two, of course. And at the new church year, we move them into the two-year-old room. And even there, they eat a lot of crackers. They drink a lot of juice. We change a lot of diapers, even at two. We do help with potty training. And just this morning, we had a grandmother to come in and tell us. She said, we're trying to teach, and I won't give you her name, but um, we try, are trying to teach her that she is not to say no to an adult. 
if she says no to any of the teachers, you call me. And so we do try to help with that. We do try to teach them the right way to, uh, to be with other children. The most important thing we do, though, is we teach them about Jesus. And at this age, we sit them down, the teachers sit them down around the table and do the story with them. And it's, you know, I'm just surprised. I, I look in there quite often, and I, I look in there, and I see these children sitting around this table, and they are just absorbing everything that their teacher tells them. And many, many times, they can repeat back what has been told to them. So they're learning. And at this age, we're also teaching them how to do that because next year they'll be going over to the three-year-old class, and it's a different story there. It's a different ball game in that three-year-old class. Just a little bit about the kind of people that we need uh, or how many we need. We have seven dedicated workers on Sunday morning in Sunday school. They're there every week unless um, illness or something else prevents them from being there. Um, they're there to take a child that when that child comes in crying. They take that child, and sometimes a cracker will do it, but a lot of times they take them to a rocking chair or they'll find a toy or something to calm them down. But we're there to, to take them so that the parents can go to Sunday school. They can come to worship service. They can go on Wednesday nights to a class and sometimes even to a special event. Because I know that if, if we don't, then these parents cannot do that, and we would lose those parents. So we um, are there to serve them in that way. During worship service, like we are right now, we have anywhere from six to eight people there every Sunday morning to stay with these children. Sunday nights, we have four. Wednesday nights, we have four to six. So it takes a lot of people to run the nursery. And I am so pleased to say that I have very few people to tell me that, no, that's not my thing. And that's okay. Because if a child is not your thing, then you really don't need to be in there. You need to be serving somewhere else. But I, uh, very few people have ever told me that, no, I don't want to be there. So I can say that at this point in the nursery, we have a roster of about 75 people from our church that serves in the nursery at one time or another. Sometimes it's monthly, sometimes it's bi-monthly, sometimes it's weekly. So we, we do have a lot of people that serve. The last thing I'm going to say is that I am um, just, I'm very grateful to this church. I'm grateful for what you do for us in the budget. Because, as I said earlier, we buy a lot of crackers, we buy a lot of juice. We have bought uh, rockers, rockin', new rocking chairs recently. We have bought, I have bought and made curtains for the rooms, and y'all provide the money for that. Your, your tithes and offerings provide that, and we are so grateful for that because we couldn't do it with just out of our pockets, as you well know. Um, just one last thing to share with you is that um, my favorite verse in the Bible, uh, I really don't know when I came up with this, uh, but I know it's been many, many years that I sort of uh, took this, this verse as my verse. And it's found in Proverbs 22, 6. I don't know why I'm tearing up, but I am. But it says to train up a child 
and the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. And that is what I want to use as our motto in the nursery. And I appreciate you all for letting us do that. Thank you, Ms. I don't know that I would have guessed that there are 75 people involved in our nursery ministry. But doesn't it encourage you to know that all the people that are there are there because they get to, not because they got to? That's a great thing. A negative attitude towards service doesn't do anyone well. If you have a negative attitude and you're serving someone, that person doesn't feel served because your attitude doesn't match your actions. And as we look this morning briefly, quickly, at the early church, we will see a radically different approach to service. A positive attitude towards service. A service that happens spontaneously as an overflow of their relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to encourage you, this is basically going to be a one-point sermon, broken down, uh, and I'm going to ask you to put your listening ears on, because we're going to move here kind of quickly. But if you have your copy of the Scriptures, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and listen to what this passage says. <clears throat> this is explaining how the early church grew. Chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Not a traditional passage when we talk about service. But I think that this entire passage can be summarized into one pregnant sentence that is full of meaning. And the summary sentence is this. Because the early church made depth of discipleship a priority, they had a service that was superb and a witness that was wide. Now, all you ADD people... I just gave you all the blanks to fill in right there. Listen to it again. Because the early church made depth of discipleship a priority, they had a service that was superb and a witness that was wise, that was wide. Do you see this in the passage? Let me break down this sentence and look at the constituent parts and see, first of all, how they made depth of discipleship a priority. Look with me again at verse 42. They, the early church, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. When I ask the question, what did the early church dedicate themselves to? 
what's the very first thing that you see in the list? Well, of course, it is the apostles' teaching. When the early church gathered, they wanted to not simply get together, they wanted to hear from the Lord. And so when they gathered together, of first priority was listening to the teaching of the apostles. Now, what is that? Well, obviously, it would have included the Old Testament scriptures. Certainly, we could deduce that this would include Jesus' earthly teachings and miracles. They would remind them not only of the Old Testament heritage, but what God had done newly and recently among them. Specifically, they would teach on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They would teach on how to do evangelism, how to talk with other people about this thing that Jesus had done. And based upon Jesus' own teaching, they would talk about ethics. How do we live now that Jesus has come? How do we live out our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ and with those who don't believe? How do we face persecution? Jesus didn't say that following him would be easy. And so the early church was dedicated to learning how they were to live, how they were to appreciate who Jesus was. They wanted to know what the word said. And as a matter of first priority, they would consider it a wasted day if they did not learn something new from the word. They would consider it a wasted day if they were not more deeply enriched by the scriptures. So friends, we have to ask ourselves, are we committed to the apostles' teaching the same way that the early church was? Now when I use this sentence to summarize Acts 2, 42 through 47, I talk about deep discipleship. What is deep discipleship? I think it's simply this. They were dedicated not only to the study of the word, but also to the practice of the word. How do we know this? How do we see them doing this? Well, I ask the question, what else besides the apostles' teachings were they dedicated to in verse 42? Well, it says very simply that they were dedicated to fellowship. And then we, we lose something here if we don't translate this right. The definite article, the, is applied to both of the next two categories. They were committed not only to fellowship, but to the breaking of bread, which I think is a clear reference to the Lord's Supper. This is not simply a meal. Breaking of bread could refer to what we're all going to do when we get out of here and go home and eat. But by saying the breaking of bread, they're saying something definitive. They were committed to worshiping together, to remembering the Savior's sacrifice. And they were committed to the prayers. Not simply blessing the meal before they ate, but to the prayers. And many commentators believe that this meant that the early church was still involved in those Jewish rituals of daily prayer. As a matter of fact, we know uh, later on that they were involved in the temple. And we, we see here how they were committed to these things. It says they were continually devoted to these things. You hear people say, man, we want to have a New Testament church. Do you really? We can't seem to get but 30% of our members here for once a week church. The early church had daily church. Would you come to a worship service six days a week, seven days a week? Not only that, they were not just committed to formally getting together as a big group. They were committed to small groups. 
says not only did they gather in the temple in verse 46, it says day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread, not the breaking of bread, breaking bread. They were sharing daily meals from house to house. So not only were they committed to daily public worship, they knew that when the church gathered together, that was special. This was a chance for us to be reminded of the forgiveness that Christ has applied to us and the grace and power that he gives us to leave this place to live as his witnesses. They said, I'm charged up when I go to church. I'm encouraged when I gather with the church. But they knew that the church gathered wasn't just a priority. The church scattered was a priority. So what did they do? They'd get out of church and they'd have little church in their house. Let's say, come on over to my house. We're going to break bread together. We're, not the break bread. We're just going to have a meal. And let's talk about the things that we've learned. Let's encourage one another. Let's share our lives together. And so they were daily committed to public, gathered together worship. They were committed to daily scattered small groups. And did you see how verse 46 ended? They were committed to daily awesome attitudes. Not only did they go to church every day and have small groups every day, but it says they were breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart. They were truly committed to being our Lord's disciples. We see their depth of discipleship and the sweetness of their fellowship most vividly in our second point when we talk about their service being superb. Their service being superb. And we see this in how they practiced fellowship. In our day and age, we're tempted to think of fellowship simply as a social gathering. It's not necessarily a Christian event, but it's Christians in a room together with food, especially if they're Baptist. And so fellowship is definitely social. We enjoy being with each other. But pay attention to this chart. Fellowship also includes how we serve one another and how we live with one another. As a matter of fact, the Bible has a whole list of one another's throughout the New Testament that tells us if we're going to be the church, the one another's are important. So look here on the screen and you'll see it. Wow, that's small. (laughs) Email me and I'll send you the list so you can start doing your homework. But they've got things like contributing to one another's needs. Do you feel fellowship when someone helps you out? Oh, yes, you do. Thank God for brothers and sisters in Christ who help me when I can't help myself. We're to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to love one another, to be devoted to one another, to give preference to one another, to accept one another, to admonish one another. Not just a Sunday school teacher's responsibility. Not just a deacon's responsibility. Not just a pastor's responsibility. It is the Christian's responsibility to admonish one another. To hold them accountable. We're to be kind. We're to be tenderhearted. We're to forgive. We're to teach. We're to encourage. There's a second slide. It goes on and on and on. That our fellowship requires us to serve one another. So here's a trick question. Baptist brethren and sistren. If we get together and there is no food in the fellowship hall, can fellowship take place? Absolutely. But these are the kinds of things that we have to do. 
We have to be dedicated to not just being social, but to living out our discipleship in the context of relationship. It's been said that if we want to see a person's priorities, you can check their checkbook. How serious are they about the church, about their relationships? And in that case, while the early church didn't maybe have checkbooks, we see that they were very seriously committed to financial sacrifice in their care for one another. As they studied the word and they learned of their spiritual unity in Christ, they took very serious a practical unity when it came to their finances. Look at verses 44 and 45. All those who had believed were together. Friends, that's a sermon right there, but I preached it last week. God's people are supposed to be together. An active membership is an oxymoron. Here in the early church, all who had believed were together. And they had all things in common. And they began selling their real estate and their personal possessions, their teddy bears, their DVRs, their golf clubs, their BMWs. And they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. What kind of sense of unity must a church have to be willing to sacrifice for the weakest and poorest among you? There's a reason the early church was the early church. Nobody wants to be the middle church. They started out pure. They started out strong. But they fell away from their first love. The truth is the early church knew that those who share in God will share in His nature. And if God is indeed generous, what will God's people be? They'll be generous. They'll be glad to give. And so as they were studying the Word and fellowshipping, here's the thing that's kind of neat. All these needs came up. 3,120 people showing up for church that was a church of 120 people a week ago. Wow. Wow. All these needs came up. People were visiting Jerusalem on religious holiday and got converted. They could not go back home. They needed to be discipled. And so a church of 120 people welcomed 3,000 new members into the church. You think there were some needs? People were visiting from foreign countries and had no job in Jerusalem. That's why it became so important for this financial sacrifice to support these religious pilgrims who now needed help. And here's what confounds me. All of these needs and cares that needed to be met. And there was no sign-up sheet or committee to get it done. It just says that they knew if they were going to be serious in following Christ, that needs needed to be met. They were in it together, and they were willing to do whatever needed to be done. If you look at this passage, there are all kinds of these phrases where we see this togetherness. Look at verse 42. It says, They... All of them were continually devoting themselves. Verse 44, And all of those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45, And they, corporately, began selling their property and possessions. Verse 46, Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple, gathering house to house, taking their meals 
together. The truth is when people get together on any scale, there's stuff that needs to get done. Worship doesn't just happen. Sermons have to be prepared. Music has to be arranged. Power bills have to be paid. PowerPoints have to be made. Somebody's got to vacuum. Somebody's got to clean up. And good golly, we're Baptists. There's got to be food in the mix somewhere at some point. This stuff doesn't happen by accident. And they were ready to do whatever needed to be done. And did you notice their attitude of triumphant gladness in getting all this done? This was no chore. This was no duty. They were glad to share what they had with each other. It says that they did this with gladness and with sincerity of heart. And amazingly, this leads to the last part of our sins, that they had a wide witness. And I want you to pay attention to that sentence, because as they were committed to a deep discipleship, as they realized that there were needs to be met, and they were committed to a superb service, they had a witness that was far wider than they ever could have planned. Far wider. As they sought to truly be his disciples, as they found joy in serving each other, each person doing his part, something extraordinary happened. We just ran through this passage and looked at all these together statements. Well, as these believers all did what they were supposed to do, look at what God did. Verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Who's the everyone? It's not the church. It's people outside the church. It's literally every soul. Anyone who came into contact with the early church was amazed. Wow, look at these people. Look at their love for one another. Look at their love for Christ. They draw a contrast between everyone feeling this in verse 43 and then verse 44, all those who had believed the church. Everyone that was surrounding the church, non-believers, were feeling a sense of awe by watching the church be the church. Why is it in our day and age that when we talk about church, It sounds like a relegated antique from a bygone era. Why in the world would you waste your Sunday there? Where is the sense of awe with the church being the church? Is it perhaps that the church has left the building? When the church is serious about discipleship and serious about service, the Lord adds to the number day by day. Verse 47, the early church enjoyed favor with all the people. Christians who genuinely live as salt and light are, 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 are appreciated by people who don't understand the values that we have. And it's been said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And in that sense, we need to see this picture. Is that not only are we committed to discipleship, we're committed to our witness, but the problem is if we're all committed to our um, witness, to our evangelism without being disciples, what happens to the seesaw? It's out of balance. If we're committed to discipleship, man, let's have a Bible study. Let's have another Bible study. Let's have a third Bible study. But we don't do anything? What happens to the seesaw? It's out of balance. What is the bridge that connects our discipleship with our mission? And that's how we serve. That's how we serve each other. That's how we serve the men's shelter. That's how we serve Hope House. That's how we spread the gospel to our community. And so we have to balance discipleship with mission. 
We can't be one without the other and claim to be faithful. And so it's awesome to read this passage and see how with no committees, with no um, sign-up sheet, service just happened. We wouldn't need a nominating committee if people just stepped up and said, hey, listen, um, I'm not doing anything. Can you put me to work? What church would not love to have people doing that? But the truth is our attitude towards service has changed. Here, they were focused almost solely upon discipleship. And as they were serious about that, they knew that disciples serve, disciples witness, and it just flowed powerfully as a powerful witness to a watching world. How I wish that was the case today. But it's not. In every church with which I am personally familiar, languishes for the need of willing workers. Northside could use some more willing workers. We need some more get-to folks. We don't need any more got-to folks. We need some get-to folks. And so in our few minutes that are remaining, let me make three very specific but very practical charges to us about service. that I think are are helpful for us to conclude our message. Number one, service is not easy. It's not easy. Now, you may be like Miss Alice, and you may have developed a love in your heart for little kids. Um, I love my little kids. My little kids. Maybe not your little kids. I don't mind changing my kids' diapers most of the time. Service is not easy. And here's the thing. You have to pay attention to your motives. You have to pay attention to your motives. You may look like you're serving on the outside. You follow where I'm going? But if you're not serving with a servant's heart, what are you doing? You're not serving. If you're doing this with a rotten attitude, just stop. It's not service. It's self-righteous. I want people to think I'm good because I'm doing something. But it's not what the Bible defines as service. You have to serve on the outside and on the inside. So here's the question. How do you know you're serving with a servant's heart? How do you know you're serving with the right attitude? Here's an easy answer. You know you're serving with a servant's heart when someone treats you like a servant. Anybody want, to, anybody want to be treated like a servant? I sure don't. I want you telling me what to do. Well, you need to do this. You need to do that. How you react when someone treats you like a servant is a pretty doggone good test of whether you've got a servant's heart. If you're going to pack your game up and go home because you're offended, maybe you aren't serving with the right attitude. Because you can't please people. Not all the time. And friends, listen to this. <laughs> serving God doesn't save you. It doesn't. Serving God does not make you his child any more than serving someone else makes you theirs. So if I serve Tom Harden, that doesn't make me Tom Harden's kid. If I serve God, that doesn't make me God's kid. Now, it may be good proof that I'm God's kid, but serving God doesn't make me his child any more than serving someone else makes me theirs. Number two, not only is service not easy, Service requires discipline. 
Service requires discipline. If you don't serve as a discipline, when will you serve? When will you serve? When it's easy for you? When it's convenient for you? When it's something you enjoy? Friend, if you put all these conditions on your service, who are you serving? It's self-service. It's not service to the people of God. It's not service to our heavenly Father. And don't just serve in areas where you're gifted. You know, I, I hear people all the time when we talk about service in the church, well, that's not my gift. Well, it's obviously no one else's gift because nobody else is doing it. Well, you do it until we find somebody who has a gift. You know, we need... My gift may not be babies. But you know what? If nobody else is willing to do it, I can do that. I may not feel power. I may not get tons of gratitude. You know, I may not feel good about it. It may not be my cup of tea. But I can serve because service is a discipline not just something that we get a kickback from. And so I get it. Listen, not everyone serves. Some people don't serve because they feel like they've had service opportunities dumped on them. Hey, do you want to do the babies? Great. And then you're stuck doing the babies for the next 18 years until when, or until when Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. You're stuck. Some people have had ministries dumped on them. Some people are just plain timid. Don't make me do something that requires me to be around people. I'm shy. Some people feel like they've done their time. And the odd thing is the people who have done their time are probably now best equipped to really serve the church well. Some people have gladly served in ministries that were a bad fit for them. And others have been embarrassed because they served in ministries in which they were ill-equipped to serve. Regardless of your past, the excuses could go on and on forever. But remember this, our third and final point. Service is rewarding. Service is rewarding. It can help others. If you've ever been truly served, you know that somebody has helped you. When you're broke down on the side of the road and five million cars go zooming by you and that one person stops, thank you so much for stopping. I don't know what's going on with my car. Friends, our church can be stronger because of you. Someone can be encouraged because of you. Someone may become a believer because of you. And everyone who really wants to can find at least one thing that they can do to strengthen their church. We need help with audiovisual ministry here at the church. Technology is an ever-increasing need in our fellowship. We will, next year, use more technology than we use this year. And you know what? The year after that, we will use more technology that year than we use next year. We've got the same people, by and large, that have served in our audiovisual ministry for years. The pool's not growing. We have a campus to take care of. We've got wonderful renovations taking place in our fellowship hall, and we've got the same three or four people that do it all. If you, that's your thing. Join the building and grounds crew. Come help. Serve in the church. I've already said, attending is a way to serve. When this room is full, what's it communicate to a visitor? This is a church worth being at because there's 300 other people that are here. Wow. 
If a hundred of you show up, what's that communicate to, to visitors? Hmm. Wow, I guess the people that even go here don't think it's worth going to. Attendance is a service. Choir is a service. There are ways that you can strengthen your church. Number two, service makes you like Jesus. Not only does it help others, it makes you like Christ. And here's my question. If Jesus was a member of Northside Baptist Church, do you think he would serve or would he just show up on Sunday morning for the service? Do you think Jesus would be content to display the gift, the spiritual gift of pew sitting? Or would Jesus just say, I got to do something. I love the singing. I appreciate the teaching. I have to serve. Friends, if the servant is no greater than the master and Jesus is a servant, when we serve, we're like Jesus. And if you have ever wondered how to be more like Christ, let me just suggest to you that maybe you need to serve a little bit more and he'll teach you a little bit of being, about being like him. And then third and finally, friends, service glorifies God. Service glorifies God. If you won't serve God, what does that say to other people about the God that you serve? He's not worth serving. Friends, think about the reverse of that. If you do serve God, your service communicates that God is worthy of your service. He is worthy of your sacrifice. And His kingdom is worth building beyond any individual little kingdom that you want to build on your own. And so friends, a church that glorifies God is a serving church. Let's outdo each other in serving one another informally and formally because your life will be better because you serve God. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded that a God-glorifying church must be a serving church. And so, Lord, one of the things that I love is I have the opportunity to get up here and just let it fly and throw the challenge out. And what I am so grateful is right now your spirit is taking your word and applying it to individual believers' hearts. There are people here right now who are convicted because they have not uh, carried their share of the load in the faith family of God. There are some who have the opportunity to sit back and say, thank you, Jesus, for helping me to get this right. I've served and I've served long, and there is nothing wrong to feel a sense of satisfaction in being obedient to the Lord. So Lord, wherever we are at, whether there is conviction of not having served as much as we might be able to, or whether there is a deep and abiding sense of joy and satisfaction in having served you, Lord, help us not do nothing with a message like this. Help us serve. Maybe it's attending. Maybe it's becoming members. Maybe it's cutting the grass. Maybe it's being with kids. Lord, you have gifted us for service and we sin against you by not serving. So Lord, make us a church that obeys fully, happily, and gladly. In Jesus' name, amen.